I need some books like I never needed books before. Covid isolation, baby. I started the mantel. Good old Tom Cromwell. I don't know whether it will last three weeks. Tet set Tom Cromwell free. King Henry. Hello, 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 and welcome back to Bernie Fisher's Isolation Station. I am your host, Dan Fuller, and I am joined again today by my colleague and friend, Somaya. So how are you doing? I am in full Princess Elsa mode. I am starting to refer to this as my kingdom of isolation (laughs) due to the downward trend of the weather. Have Have you got the full outfit on? My niece was wearing her Princess Elsa dress, both of her Princess Elsa dresses for homeschooling today. I have my Princess Elsa tea mug, uh, (laughs) which is as far as I'm willing to go. Okay. (laughs) So that is is my life styling. That seems reasonable. I'm... Um, I'm kind of. I've got a new executive chair, so my back is much more supported, which is quite nice. And I'm staring out the window at um, you know blue skies, and which is rather pretty. Although it is quite disturbing. There's there's a child um, in the house in a terrace opposite. He seems to have acquired some uh, binoculars <laughs> and they've been looking at me quite a lot. Um, so I, I feel slightly slightly observed, which isn't isn't uh, isn't the greatest of feelings. But uh, I have been I've been trying to wave and. Have you read Sarah Waters' The Little Friend? Uh, no, I have not. Okay, well, you have that extremely creepy pleasure. Wait. <laughs> <laughs> I would read it before engaging with small child with binoculars, just so that okay. you know what's coming. So I prepared. So I prepared. Hopefully, it's not like wasp factory vibes. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, so we have an amazing show lined up today that deals with dreams and the subconscious and the occult and signs and importance um, we do the bees are already out in uh, our local park so it seemed like it was a good time to talk to poets about yeah, signs yeah, importance yeah. so do you want to do you want to introduce them and tell us a little bit about their work yeah that's probably a good idea um in alphabetical order by surname we will be talking to will harris and mm-hmm. jeremiah both of them have recently published first collections yeah will's first collection rendang came out at the beginning of march yeah um which was perfect timing and imperfect timing and we talk about that a bit in our conversation and it's a it's an incredibly tender collection of work that is about family it's about diasporas it's about communing across difference and distance and across language and it's also about the tenderness of family and of caring for family so it feels really particularly poignant uh right now highly recommended as a balm for the soul and he's a he's a long-running friend of the shop as well, Will. He is. Um, and um, who else do we have joining us? We also uh, have Nisha Ramaya, whose first mm-hmm. book, States of the Body, Produced by Love, was published by Ignota last autumn. Yeah, amazing and press. 
amazing press uh also friends of the shop uh we're massive supporters of them and they've been really big supporters of us uh nisha's mm. book is a combination of essay and lyric poetry and invocation mm-hmm. uh and music it's a spell for the body it's a spell for the bodies that are the yeah. least seen and the least valued we talk a bit on the podcast about how she's really attending to what we're now calling key workers people yeah. who take care of us and who we so cruelly undervalue um and it's just an incredible invocation of awareness for the body and and for love and for language so they, it was great to bring these two uh, great thinkers about language and about care together and i hope you really enjoy our conversation well that sounds absolutely fantastic fantastic and i'm sure our readers readers listeners are waiting with bated breath to get into the meat of the show um we're going to start off with a reading from nisha and then we're going to have uh, a conversation between so and the two poets a meeting of colossal minds uh, we'll be trailing off with a reading from will and then me and so are going to let you guys know what's coming up over the next few weeks so that's enough waffling for me enjoy the show I'm going to read an extract from a report that I wrote for uh, the most recent issue of Poetry Review, which is edited by Will Harris and Mary Jean Chan. Um, And it was a report on uh, an event called Arica that I attended in Glasgow in November. It's called Notes on a Means Without End. See you, no, try. Racial capitalism as an effect of space-time conditions, in which separability is the privileged ontological principle. It's how we be. Do not. Do not remind me of the way you lot estrange. D says, when the social reflects the entangled world, many people think to themselves, telekinetic likes, like the release of matter from form, I think. Glissant's relation. I think Le Guin's mind speech. No, it doesn't work properly if one summons the I think. Space-time is the limit case of imagination opposed by the wormhole aliens. Let's not end up where we are now. Let's don't be here. Do not, says Worf. No. Jay narrates Alice Coltrane's divine revelations. Sitting next to an open window, listening to the wind flow through the harp strings that she hadn't yet dared to touch. Alice learned to play the harp as an act of bereavement, favouring the instrument's capacity for sympathetic resonance, or glissando. Jay dwells on the opacity of gliding, bringing glissant back into the ensemble where he already is. An ensouled chorus falls in, singing failure as emergent form. If we want to learn something new, we have to change our bodies. There's husbandry in the auditorium. Everyone falls quiet. The political efficacy of restructuring the monological order, of breathing and coughing the body into performance, of occupying abandoned buildings in the poetry establishment. When N says we're fucked, I know the people with whom I want to spend the end of the world and feel grateful for poetry that isn't too embarrassed or exquisite to scream at the abject barricade, you are so much stronger than you even know. 
Everyone in the auditorium coughs in solidarity, and several people take the opportunity to open their tinnies. At the end of Untitled Hand Dance, B whispers, Zalamea. A wormhole splurge is open, connecting me and you across millennia of judicious applause. We project entanglement from the simplest nub. We gravitational feel these miniature performances of monkey ropes, these synthetic sheaves, sheaves speech do not not irradiate pronouns. Old poets leave rejoicing. We live in the leaves of rhyming surfaces, in layers futures composed. And just to say that the people that are quoted there is uh, D is Denise Ferreira da Silva, uh, J is Jackie Wang, and N is Nat Raha. And uh, oh yeah, finally, and B is Boychild. Seed story. Misting the ivy, her groin chakra is at 47%. The green hearts of the leaves turn as pale as their almost white outlines. She considers phoning her mother for advice, but the thought of speaking, of hearing oneself speak, of compelling body to expend more breath than simply breath, of pressing lungs, laryngeal muscles, organs of articulation and pronunciation, the thought of those latent sights of her own voice inside her, of interiority, exiting the body without smell, stain, or structural rigidity of her interiority encountering her mother's across space-time, like one's own serpent rising out of one's own body to meet another serpent rising out of another's body to lick, to twist, to bolt. The green hearts of the leaves turn as brown as their seat of desire. I'm here today with poets Will Harris and Nisha Ramaya. Welcome both of you to Burley Fisher's Isolation Station. Thank you for having us. Hey. I understand we are also joined by some other than human poets. I don't know if they'll be saying hi to us during the recording, but I believe that Tickle Penny and Wharf are with Nisha yeah. and Puss is with Will. Yeah, I actually just locked her out of the room just in case because she was she has a habit of climbing all over me <laughs> in quite a distracting way. Right. <laughs> so if we hear any scratching at the door and yowling, we know why. Yeah, yeah, that's her. So welcome to all five beings. You're all welcome to uh, the isolation station, and um, I hope you're keeping sane. What is keeping you sane at the moment? If it is. Um, well, I've actually been, I haven't been able to read, I was trying to keep reading things that I'd been reading pre-lockdown and I couldn't. So I started reading Eleanor Ferranti's Neapolitan novels, which I realize I'm many years late, but they've been ex really great remedies because I already feel like reality has collapsed all around me. So it kind of makes perfect sense to just transport myself entirely into the world of the novel. So yeah, I've been spending a lot of time in Naples, <laughs> hanging out <laughs> with the gang. <laughs> and yeah, they've been great company. Are you kind of horrified every time characters touch each other? <laughs> <laughs> Were you horrified every time characters touch each other? Only in this new coronavirus situation where oh. I feel like I read and watch things and I think, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Will? What's keeping you on the level? Um... 
Uh, similar in terms of reading stuff which helps with the collapse of reality. I've I've been reading some Ursula Le Guin the last couple of days. This uh, right. it's uh, what's it called the Lathe of Heaven. Which <laughs> have you have you read it? Either of you? Yes. Talking about the collapse of reality. <laughs> it's and it's yeah, it's incredible. It is it is the most comforting thing I've I've read in the, in the last two 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 weeks or so. <laughs> just so it's it's about this this person whose dreams exert an influence on reality they kind of change the world what what he dreams and so every every 10 pages or so the entire world of the book shifts usually in a more apocalyptic direction even though this uh doctor who's trying to like harness his dream power is constantly trying to make the world better it just ends up making it worse in unforeseen ways and it's really great we just have to hope that the turtle aliens are coming to save us. Yes, I just I just read that scene. It's amazing. <laughs> are, are you finding that this situation is affecting how you dream or where your creative mind is going? That sort of liminal place that links poetry and dreaming. Where is it taking you at the moment? Mm. Um, I yeah, I've definitely found that. I think I mean just the fact of spending so much time by yourself, um, it, it feels like it can often feel like you never really wake up. I think particularly because mm. I've been reading about dreaming. I've also been reading this psychoanalyst, uh, Christopher Bolas, who writes a lot about dream work. And I just, I feel like uncomfortably tuned into my, my sub subconscious at the moment. Because <laughs> um, I think that's what human interactions do meeting people, going for long walks, traveling on the underground, they kind of break you out of your yourself. Mm -hmm. Whereas now I feel kind of steeped in my dreams. I mean, I'm not even recalling them better, but they're just, just there. What about, what about you? So Nisha? I, yeah, I've been having much more vivid dreams or remembering more dreams um, as well. It's interesting what you say that the lack of, I don't know that our subconscious might be more active or we might be tuning into it more because of the lack of other kinds of dialogue. Um, mm. I had a dream that Isabel Weidner and their partner set up a shelter for refugees and asylum seekers um, inside a giant pumpkin. <laughs> and, <laughs> and Isabel just like did this amazing renovation work on the giant pumpkin <laughs> and made it fully functional. <laughs> so that was, that was a really inspiring dream that I had. <laughs> that seems totally possible and, and legitimate. <laughs> maybe, maybe necessary. Yeah. yeah, something we should campaign for in, uh, in a world that absolutely needs organic housing yeah. collectives uh, run by experimental queer writers. <laughs> <laughs> what about you, So, I've been having very boring dreams. Um, last night I was managing an Argentinian radio station under the dictatorship <laughs> and I had to decide whether to protest or not about the fact that the government was putting disinformation into the soap opera. Uh, episodes. Oh. Uh, this is probably influenced mm. by the announcement that the Archers is going to be covering the coronavirus. Oh, God. Uh. Uh, and reading a lot of Maria Vargas Llosa when I was very young and impressionable. So, 
Yeah. And also um, knowing you were about to host host this podcast. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> under, so, under an authoritarian regime. So. Of Craig. But. Of Craig. Craig the bot is our is our Dominic Cummings. He comes and goes very swiftly and robotically. <laughs> what what <laughs> other than the giant pumpkin, or as well as the giant pumpkin, are you are you seeing things manifesting in in your community, whether that's your poetry community or teaching community or your friends uh community that is that you're drawn to any initiatives or ideas or group pra- collective practices uh, not necessarily to do with creativity but they they may be is there anything that you've seen out there that you'd like to give a shout out that you think our listeners might be drawn to too um well there's so many people have so much imagination and energy and i'm so inspired by all the different things that people are starting up and um so obviously there's the mutual the kind of local mutual aid groups but i'm also thinking about um things that are taking place online as kind of new uh, accessible um forums for kind of cultural events like um someone called enya has just set up a new radio station called no bounds radio um where basically lots of different people it's, it's very open and lots of different people are recording uh, their own shows or just reading short stories and poems by other people or having discussions um, or forums. And that seems really cool. Um, I've seen someone set up a Google Doc for everyone to type in their pandemic dreams, actually, <laughs> since oh, we were talking about dreams, like a big kind of collective document. Um, those are a couple that sprung to mind. Great. And Will, what about you? That's really great. Um, I've been slightly keeping technology at arm's length uh, in a bit to stop myself from going going mad. But I have I have been having lots of conversations with friends on via my phone on like house party and Zoom. And actually, I'm going to be taking part in this this house bound um, online festival, which is going to happen on a YouTube channel, I think, mm. which looks good. Great. And yeah, it seems like people are organizing lots of great initiatives like that, that I don't have off the top of my head, but seem to be kind of sprouting out everywhere. And especially to support lots of writers who have books out mm-hmm. that are being launched during the pandemic or around now in the next few months, which is, which is cool. And I really um, yeah, hope that works out. We'll um, put links to everything. Will and Nisha have mentioned into the notes for the show but now seems like a good time to mention that both of them have also recently published their first collections Will snuck in just ahead uh, of the crisis in a way that does not at all seem suspicious uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> what, are you, what are you suggesting? So? Absolutely nothing <laughs> uh, his, his first co- uh, collection is Rendang and it's published by Granta and Nisha. Your first collection, States of the Body, produced by Love, was published by Ignota last year. Mm-hmm. Um, how is it going for both of you? How does it feel being published, book published poets? Well, Will, you go first mm-hmm. since you're uh, okay. you know, fresh. <laughs> fresh Rendang. Um, <laughs> fresh, yeah. Um, yeah, it, it does, it, it was feeling quite fresh. Before before the pandemic <laughs> happened, 
<laughs> and I think like with anything I publish, uh, I've, I've published, there's this feeling of exposure and kind of discomfort, especially when you're going around and doing readings in the first few weeks. Um, but now I'm not doing any of that. because. <laughs> <laughs> so in a sense, it's kind of sad, but I also feel yeah maybe relieved that i it kind of matches my feeling of discomfort and my desire to kind of bury or like bury myself having like put something into the world um yeah but no it's good good in lots of other ways <laughs> but, but yeah i i find like publishing is always it always brings out these weird feelings of shame and exposure as well as like relief to have got something finished and out of the out of your system how does it (laughs) sorry no go ahead go ahead oh i was just gonna ask will like if it feels like you know you kind of that process of releasing it has been um kind of stunted or like it's it's sort of like as if you just use the word burying like if you've buried something like that's still a bit alive kind of still wriggling and you haven't you know that's poorly (laughs) phrased but is there a strange feeling that you've not had that sort of closure of that the tour kind of seals off in a way yeah yeah, maybe. I, I think the, the the process, the whole process of writing and the kind of thrill and then publishing and the discomfort is internalized over the course of sharing it and mm. um, meeting people. And I, I guess that process has been cut off now, which is slightly sad, but does mean I can, does make me feel more able to move on to new things at the same time. Mm. I don't know. Did you, did you find that over the course of, your your book coming out and touring and reading nisha yeah well i one of the things that i found was that um so the with the publisher sarah shin um who is an amazing sort of tornado um person who makes things happen (laughs) um she really likes uh discussion events and so we did lots and lots of different kinds of discussion events with different people um talking about different things that were kind of the book like seemed to open up different themes that Sarah was able to kind of um, extract and, and find people who would be able to kind of take part and, ex- and expand them even more. Um, and I found that in the process of not just doing readings, but actually all these different kinds of discussions with lots of different people helped me know some of the things I was maybe trying to do in the book, but I wasn't sure about and also suggest directions for where I want to go next or how to kind of make it feel like there's a sort of continuum from finishing that book to starting projects after the book um so I somehow I think all of those different like I think live events and talking to people and discussions really helps with that sense of that this is just an ongoing project um the publication is is like a one sort of temporary like pause in something that's actually um, still going or, or not a pause a marker yeah yeah definitely I because I found when I first um held held the book it was almost this feeling of kind of sadness for the books or book it could have been the kind of mm-hmm. potential that you've lost when something yeah. is finally um printed and bound and I guess that fades 
once you um over the course of of sharing it and i i feel like i'm still kind of living with the potential book at the moment well will in one of the first poems in your book you do you say there must be some hard limit to language Mm. in birds of your husband all the birds of your husband and it made me think of something in in Nisha's book, um, also towards the beginning, where you, you're talking about Dr. Johnson's dictionary, which is one of the texts that you play with and, and challenge um, for its imperialism and for its sexism and its closedness. And you say, Johnson invokes a language that is organic matter, a mutable, multiplying language that would be improved by the stasis of death. So should there be a hard limit to language or not? I feel like it's a question we're really confronting at the moment as our language struggles to encompass the limits of things that perhaps some of us haven't encountered before, multiple deaths around us in a single day, the language of infection, the language of science. Where where are you both right now with language? What is it? What can we do with it? Should we give it up? <laughs> Shall we pass? <laughs> Nisha? Nisha <laughs> Come on, discur- discursive event us. I feel like you'll have a good answer to this. <laughs> um, well, it's really interesting that you quoted that. So because I, well, I, I'm sure lots of other people too underlined that bit in Will's book. Um, so it, to read the entire stanza, please must, do. <laughs> <laughs> there must be some hard limit to language, says Will Harris. To stop a thing from living is to kill a thing. This sound stopped in my throat is not a word, but could be. Um, and like I was really struck by that because, yes, on the on the one hand, there is this sense that the sound that is emerging from the throat is a is a living thing is a matter maybe even has its own autonomy um but then there's this other thing that really like captivates me about the sense of potential too and like at what point um sound meaning words language kind of become each other and what kind of Mm. keep them apart um and i was thinking I've been thinking lots about sound, uh, about vibration, about different um, orders or kind of hierarchies of meaning. Um, and I kept thinking about it in Will's poetry because there is so much emphasis on saying and the said, um, and then how what happens when something is externalized and then it, it then it is not yours anymore. It can be taken away from you and and even used against you um and yet the way that we're connecting with each other right now is in the absence of physical bodies in that we Mm. body language i don't know what body language means right now when we're social Mm. distancing but we are communicating more than ever um through text and emojis and and also through voice um and almost like there's some sort of like there's an I feel a bit like there's an excess of voice and all of these how you communicate I mean we're finding it just now like when we're talking to each other we hear each other's voice but when you can't make eye contact you can't help but interrupt or collide Mm -hmm. or you know there's all these different things that happen 
Um, and I find it really, there's a sense that voice is some sort of like somehow more, it's like true, it's connected, it, it's like testimony. Um, but I feel like all of these, used by when voice is mediated in these ways, like it kind of changes how we think about that in our relationships. I don't know. That's... Mm, yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, wow. It's a lot, it's a lot there. <laughs> the way I've been thinking about language and, and kind of in that poem is I have this uh, kind of tragic view of it, which is that people, I, I guess I used to think when I started writing poems that language was a way of connecting with people mm. and that it's just a natural human thing. But increasingly, um, and in the process of writing a book, it really became apparent to me that language is, isn't that. It's a, it's, a, it's a fake thing. It's like a fraudulent thing. It's a, it's a, it's a technology, essentially. Mm-hmm. We've um, developed, that humans have evolved and developed, which simulates the presence of a person. And that's no more apparent than when someone dies. And that poem that you quoted from is a poem about grief. Mm-hmm. And when you when someone dies, you can use you can use. I mean, I, either you have words of theirs recorded on paper or on uh, audio, which can simulate their presence, or in the act of speaking to them, you can speak as if they were alive. And and that language is the the same. It's just, it's those are the same words, but because the context has shifted, the words are completely completely different. And there's something cruel. But I mean, that's the hard limit that should be in language, but isn't. And so the the limit I'm kind of talking about is to me more the 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 kind of ethical the the moral <laughs> limit to language that, that that we as humans have to constantly reinstate and reinstate into language which isn't there which isn't part of it because it is just this tool that can be used and misused in any number of ways i don't know if that i think that's that's makes, fantastic and it's making me think that in a sense we've shifted as a culture almost as a whole to one of the modes of of poetry that is the most persistent but Jonathan Collar describes as the most embarrassing Mm -hmm. which is the apostrophic the idea that poetry can summon a you an intimate other into presence into being across time uh across you know what Le Guin describes as the the wall the 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 gap between the living and the dead and we're all engaging in this apostrophic belief at the moment a commitment to the belief that we can summon each other through voice while knowing that Mm. language is is an imperfect technology Mm. and that feels uh as you both say extremely Mm. moving and extremely a lot Mm. and perhaps that's why poetry is something that people turn to in these moments when language is reorganizing itself or collapsing under the weight of experience because poetry is committed to that that work of the the apostrophic and of in some way giving meaning to language while understanding that language is not organic romantic mechanism of connection and both both of your books your work um your work as performers as well as on the page is deeply concerned with finding what um Will in Holy Man, you call the body of ritual of belief. Again, not in a naive or conservative way, but to find some way of substantiating that for us as postmodern human beings um, or beings with other beings. And I just wanted to talk a bit about that. It is embarrassing. It is 
interesting to talk about belief and ritual, but it also feels really important right now. Mm. The body of ritual. Yeah, I guess it should be obvious, Blind. That poem arose out of my uh, dislike for for people who kind of white Westerners who have to, who have Tibetan prayer flags and just hang them up decoratively without any of the awareness of the context. And I guess it was kind of similar to how I felt about um, when about mindfulness when it became a thing. Mm. And I'm sure Nish could talk about that in a lot more detail. But it's you know like and and yoga and all these these things which when you divorce them from the entire belief system in which they're embedded, you kind of do, you, you, you are doing a kind of violence which is comparable to kind of, in that poem of kind of beheading, <laughs> beheading it, mm-hmm. taking away the body, just making them into kind of words which can be transposed into a completely different context. Obviously, you can transpose activities in lots of different ways, but there is a kind of violence which is being done to it, which I find distressing sometimes. You mentioned in the book that you, um, like when you, well, the speaker of the poem, when they can't sleep, they listen to this a kind of mindfulness guru. Oh, yeah. No, that's in the thing I wrote recently for that oh. I sent you. Oh, sorry. I'm <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. up my Will Harris's. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no that 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 is me I, yeah that's true i did i did go through a phase where i was sleeping really badly and i would look up kind of um meditation sleeping videos on youtube which i actually didn't didn't work like 80 percent of the time because i just found them so annoying there are some good ones but it's hard to hard to find mm. Yeah, I, I, I found that, so at the beginning of the year anyway, it, in January, I was all ready to kind of uh, integrate a, kind of a more regular kind of ritual practice into my life, which is otherwise has always been very kind of sporadic. And um, I bought a new deck of tarot cards and I got the I Ching and so then I kind of thought like now, right now is definitely the time for deeper kind of contemplation and reflection um, internally and like in relation to the world around. But somehow right now I feel more sensitive than ever as if I don't, I'm not, I don't really want to do it right now. I, it feels a bit too, like it's too vulnerable a time, um, even though, on the one hand, it feels a bit like suddenly there's all the time in the world to do that because of being alone and being, you know, relatively in solitude. It feels like it's actually too much. Like it get kind of related to what Will was saying earlier, like that if I was out and about and seeing people, it might I might be a bit more shored up to do this kind of solitary introspection kind of work. So I've been having lots of baths, which I, I think lots and lots of people have been doing, um, if, they have, if you're lucky enough to have a bathtub. And I watched several times in a row Werner Herzog's documentary, Cave of Forgotten Dreams. Oh, wow. It really, if you haven't seen it, that is like a guided meditation <laughs> through, through mm. the past and the future, which I would really recommend. Um, but yeah, it's actually, it feels a bit too, right now, it's actually a bit too close. Everything's too close. 
Well, how do, what do you think? So have you found uh, a new ritual practice right now? Or? Apart from trying to transpose book titles into emoji, no. <laughs> 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 I, I, I practice everything with mindfulness, of course. Mm. <laughs> um, I, I actually wanted to turn the question, in a sense, back around in two directions. One being about whether that's affecting your creative practices as well. Does it feel too close, too immediate, too unsorted to be writing in any variety? Because, of course, you both um, write in critical prose forms uh, as well as poetry and poetics. And also how else you're attending to or tending your body and the bodies of those around you ground sort of grounding yourselves in that because Nisha that's something that's incredibly present in states of the body produced by love attending to you particularly uh, you talk about Matangi as one of the figures who is associated you say with those who do the dirtiest mm. and most necessary work and it feels that right now Matangi is being attended to in cultures that have neglected her despised her mm. abrogated her services and neglected her in in an extraordinary way it's a moment when we can actually make ourselves attend to that both in terms of what we're doing for ourselves and those we care for and those who are care workers so i i'd like to hear a bit about your how you're taking care of your creative practice if you can and how you're taking care of of bodies including feline bodies uh, <laughs> at the moment as well Nesha, do you want to? <laughs> yeah, um, well, so with writing, I feel quite stuck because it's related to reading. I, I was all set with a particular project, um, but when the pandemic, I suppose, I suppose more when we kind of went into lockdown, I feel really strongly that I don't want to and can't capitalize on this moment. I, I. I can't use this as an excuse. Oh, I'm at home, therefore I can be do more work. And I, I think you and Preeti talked about that sort of in your conversation about Shakespeare writing King Lear during um, the plague. And um, I, I, I don't feel more productive. I don't feel. I, I feel that it's wrong to to capitalize. And I have a question about how to write right now, which I think is always present. How do you write something? Um, that doesn't attend to what's going on around you. Um, mm -hmm. But with the pandemic, it's so much illustrating what we already knew about worldwide entanglement, but it's it's made it very clear, including to people who might have refused to accept that previously. It's making very clear this, this sense that we are in the same ship, <laughs> mm. Although we are in very different places in that same ship, and and the you know the waters are going to drown some of us before others. I don't know how to write without either admitting that or um, without capitalizing on that. So I feel very stuck. Um, the only kind of writing I've tr I've done is yesterday. I kind of thought, well, I am having, I am flooded right now with all of the information and the worries and the conversations with friends and family and the memes. Um, so I'm just going to start kind of writing a diary um, and, and, you know, writing down dreams and so on. But other than that, I don't, I don't feel like I can create something new right now. I don't know. I feel very 
strange about that. What do you think? Mm. Have you been able to write well? No, no, not really. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, yeah, I connect with that completely. And actually, the thing you were saying before about taking baths and watching films, I've mm. been doing a lot of, lot of both of those things. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I guess are acts of self-care, but they're also very passive activities. And I've been yeah. feeling a need to just, just kind of be, be passive and take things in. And I guess I have been reading a bit. Um, the most creative thing I've probably been doing is cooking. I've been cooking more than I have done in ages. And, mm-hmm. um, and I guess, yeah, looking after this cat, I'm trying to stop her from, she has, she has, she's had this chronic kidney problem, which has made it really difficult for her to eat. And so I basically mm-hmm. spend the whole day trying to coax her to eat. Um, <laughs> but it's a more general thing. I, I guess what you were saying about finding it difficult to write, I, I read, um, I finally read the Denise Riley Time Live Without Its Flow mm. essay that she Oof. wrote after the Lost of the Sun. And, she, and one of the things that really struck, struck me in that was when she talks about how in order to write, you need to, you know, you need to possess a feeling of futurity. Mm. You need to believe in the future and that she has this sense, particularly in the months after uh, um, her son's death, of being like beached. <laughs> Um, being kind of pulled outside of time, beached in light, clearly. Mm. And that's kind of what I felt like, like a kind of beached animal that when all I can do is just kind of lie supine and just kind of take in things. I can't put stuff into the world, partly because it doesn't believe, I, the, the, the belief in there being a kind of continuing like river or structure of time um, that will carry me on what's has kind of slightly faltered. Mm. Yeah, I feel like that that passivity that it, it, it really speaks to what how I'm feeling too. Like I feel very much like very passive and very like a container or a receptacle, um, like some sort of just giant ear or shell or cave. I think that's why the cave of forgotten dreams was <laughs> really resonates <laughs> to create to do something active in that way feels. I couldn't, yeah, I can't locate it in time. But I think, uh, well, again, I'm quoting you, so, but you said like in the podcast with Preeti about saying thank you to your bin collectors. And I think like that, that, yeah, we, there should be, it's obviously, it's wonderful to be, do this kind of big, kind of loud um, gesture of gratitude to the NHS, but there are so many uh, key workers that we're depending on that um like people who are working in um mm-hmm. shops and you know and people who are collecting rubbish and and other people who are not being sent home and who are like in danger and not being recognized for that mm-hmm. and i i think even like there's a lot of discussion with my at my university with the the ucu the the union um about the fact that I could, first of all, students were sent home, then academic staff, then professional staff. And what about people, what about cleaners and security people? And mm. it, there's, a, there's this kind of, the, the order in which everyone was sent home really made, mm. again, it really made clear this, these kinds of hierarchies. And, and so there's, you know, there are some campaigns to try and like get some clarification on that. And also because a lot of people in, who work in those jobs are outsourced or don't have proper contracts and 
that I think that's a really serious thing that, uh, but lots of people are doing really great work to kind of um, campaign to management about sorting that out. One reason that I mentioned uh, thanking the rubbish collection staff of your local area on the previous podcast was uh, that we were talking about key workers and that we were talking about the kind of rage that we're feeling at the moment about inequality and how we might direct that, redirect that in the ways that Nisha was mentioning. But there was another much more shallow and tawdry reason, (laughs) which uh, is bringing us to the end of our podcast with the essential question on a lighter (laughs) note of... Given that toilet paper supplies are imminently due to run out uh, (laughs) in households all over Britain, some households more than others, stop stockpiling. (laughs) Which is going to be your first toilet paper book? (laughs) It can be be a hypothetical. It can be hypothetical. It doesn't have to be an actual book. No. Um, God. So many. Where, where, where does that? No, you I could sing them like the periodic tables. I, <laughs> actually, wait. I'm just. I'm just going to look at my bookshelf. It feels bad oh. to pick one hypothetically, <laughs> so I'm going to pick the one I would sacrifice. I mean, I have the collected poems of John Ashbery, and they're they're not all they're not all good. <laughs> you, to could be honest. The, you could thin thin that I book could, out uh, a little bit. Yeah, I could probably been some of the 80s stuff that was so kind of weaker weaker period oh yeah i've got 101 i've got a paul paul villain villain book which i'm not a huge fan of um yeah sorry this you want me to you you want me to to, to dish the dirt on someone in, in particular <laughs> those aren't very like those aren't very juicy <laughs> Choose the options, wait. I'll, I'll, I'll keep thinking. Okay, I can, I can, yeah, because I had an advantage because I knew that this is going to be a question. Um, and so I've really been thinking about it a lot. <laughs> and my first thought was I want something with very thin paper, you know, so any of the Norton anthologies would be great. <laughs> um, <laughs> then I thought in a very wretched, evil, <laughs> disposition all of my own unsold pamphlets and then I thought that would, uh, yeah. how would that make you feel that would that be a kind well, of it would, like, it would be and coming full circle yeah, really. cathartic, yeah. <laughs> I mean Freud does talk about writers as being people who are stuck in the anal stage so <laughs> Uh, um, but then I thought well you could also think of it as a very intimate you know what who would I invite there (laughs) 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 who would like to go Um, so I kind of thought like you know um, Samuel Delaney yes really really um, advocates (laughs) the, the scatological so and it's a very intimate thing and uh, he writes a lot, so I have <laughs> lots and lots and lots of pages to go through. <laughs> <laughs> Trouble on Triton is... <laughs> um, and then finally, which was should really have been the first response, was that it was like Preeti, um, I did grow up in an Indian household and I do have a jug. 
Very sensible. Yes. Mm. yes, this is an extremely Euro-Western <clears throat> preoccupation. Yeah. yeah. Maybe I was just thinking. Maybe I should. I should use my Kindle in protest at Jeff, Jeff Bezos's <laughs> profiteering from the, <laughs> the crisis. And it's my. <laughs> you could use yeah, it. I, could, I could reuse it. Yeah. <laughs> well, be careful. Once you've dropped it in the toilet, that is it for your Kindle, I'm afraid, <laughs> and for your toilet. <laughs> well, thank yeah. you so much to both of you. I really feel that I have been with you in some way, connecting, thinking, being, imagining your body language, uh, <laughs> because I'm lucky enough to have seen both of you read, which makes your readings uh extra wonderful people can hear you and see you online as well so thank you so much to nisha and will please do order their books uh when you can and i think are they both available as ebooks yep oh and an, and audiobook in oh. my case did you read your audiobook will i, I did yeah <gasps> oh wow <laughs> so ebook and audiobook not... of rendang by a grantor? Uh, mine's only available as a physical copy that you can order from the Ignota website and I guess other websites. So do check out the Ignota website for Nesha's book and other fine titles and shopping bags, which is something we all need at the moment. <laughs> so thank you both very much for joining thank me you. on the isolation station. Thank you. Thanks so yeah. much. So I thought I'd read a sequence of four short poems from Rendang, um, and the sequence is called Lines of Flight. The title is taken from a quote within an essay by um, Sandeep Palmer called Threads, which, also, which is also a, which is co-written with Nisha and Banu Kapil, or a kind of collaborative essay. And it's a quote from this theorist called Rosie Bridotti, where she's talking about this thing called nomadic consciousness. And she says, the point of nomadic subjectivity is to identify lines of flight. That is to say, a creative alternative space of becoming that would fall not between the mobile, immobile, the resident, the foreigner distinction, but within all these categories. And these poems all seem appropriate because they're about specific locations, places, but they're also about absences and, yeah, presences and absences. Mariinsky Canal. A girl twists a stalk of rye around her wrist like a bracelet. She sees her father at the plough and wants to pick a cornflower. It's dark blue, almost purple colour threaded through with grief among the weeds. She wants to go and pin one to his chest. And all this is implied that the photograph itself shows just a field of rye with cornflowers. Diabaka one day, a white rabbit read my fortune, twitching as it chose from several slips of paper, soft head straining at its harness, nose scabbed, peeled back like bark. Here, amid the desert, stark as day, they tortured dissidents. Now paper slips blow between the points of a barbed wire fence. A life should not just be 
but mean. Illinois. The familiar unearthly scent of bayside breeze. On the freeway, bent along its axes, I do as ghosts do. Wait. Acres of still corn, slow-smelling night. Across the ocean, he lies in hospital. He might as well be dead. This far from the side of any bay, I measure sweetness by its incongruity. London. A shuttle flies between the seasons, smoothest from spring to summer, when I think of my Chinese forebears forced to work a loom. Who'd be alone today? Migratory birds are weaving new patterns in the air, shuttles flying back and forth. Here, no, there, I've been missing you. Okay, wow, that was pretty phenomenal. Um, thank you so much to Will and Nisha for coming on the show. That was just, I feel, I feel like we covered uh, all of the dreamlands uh, in the last half hour or so. <laughs> yeah, I feel like people, if you've been listening, you're going to have some pretty amazing images in your dreams tonight from those readings and yeah. that conversation. Yeah. Oh, and can I also shout out the cat called Wharf? big up to all the trekkies listening um <laughs> such a cool name i we're not going to talk for too much longer because uh that was a lot that was a lot yeah um but we're just going to clue you up on what we've got coming up over the next few shows so on friday we are joined by ruth gilligan who has an amazing sounding novel about butchers and traditional practices in Ireland, amongst other things. And Sam will be uh, conducting that interview, and we're super excited for that. And uh, so I think we've, you've done some bookseller chat uh, for next week. That's the plan. We're going to have a chat with uh, booksellers from all points of the compass, as long as that compass is in London, um, <laughs> <laughs> with a liberal metropolitan elite. After all, uh, we'll be talking to um, some brilliant indie bookstores about how they are keeping reading alive, yeah. what their recommendations are, and what they're reading. So it will be extremely meta, yeah. and it will have all the book chat you can handle. Okay, cool. Well, I think you've heard quite enough from us too. Thanks for joining us on the isolation station, making it a bit less isolated. Yeah, indeed. And any questions or anything, even if you want to chat, if you're lonely, podcast at burleyfisherbooks.com. Peace and love and have a great day. Bye now. Bye. Burley Fisher's Isolation Station was brought to you by the team at Burley Fisher Books. Your hosts today were So Mayer and Dan Fuller, joined by Will Harris and Nisha Ramaya. This show was produced by Dan Fuller with music by Anthony Hurley, and it was made possible by all of you, our listeners and customers. We love you and stay safe.